engaging middle school math students might just be the most difficult teaching assignment one could sign up for. Unless you also bring to the job experience as a DJ, flight attendant, trombone player, UC Berkeley grad, and Wall Street protester. That person is perfect for engaging middle school math students. That person is Rodney Ward. As a child, Rodney never even liked math. Initially, he wanted to be a paleontologist, a word he could spell when he was three. After college, he wanted to teach science, but found he needed a deeper understanding of math to do so. Now, a self-proclaimed math evangelist, Rodney offers students algebraic connections to real-world scientific questions, the most recent one being, what is this virus and when will it end? We are asking him the same questions today. Welcome to Fund for Teachers, the podcast. I'm Carrie Caton, and the goal of each episode is to elevate teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. Today, we learn from Rodney Ward, eighth grade math teacher at Krista McAuliffe Regional Charter Public School in Framingham, Massachusetts. He holds a degree in social sciences from UC Berkeley and is fascinated with pop culture and how it reflects in current events. When his students asked what was going on with the coronavirus, he directed them to math for the answers. Rodney's Fund for Teachers Fellowship was as unique as he is. He participated in a paleontological dig for feathered dinosaurs in the Liaoning province of northeastern China. We caught up with Rodney in between his leading two classes for students online and playing with his eight-year-old son, Devin. Thank you for making time for this. I wanted to talk to you because you're doing this coronavirus math and modeling class. Yes. And it looked like you had 100 students sign up. 129. Okay, tell me how this happened. I teach algebra and pre-algebra and geometry. And over the years, I've also taught science. And the big question that all the kids already had on their mind is, what's going on and where is this going? Everyone in their world is talking about it. Everything on all of their social media is talking about it. There's all sorts of mythology. They're getting bad information, good information. It's hard to tell the difference. My kids are sending me messages saying, when, is, when are things going to go back to normal? And so that we engage in these conversations with them out to look at, okay, number one, it's going to be a long time. And number two, the normal that we're talk, you're talking about is really stable. And it's going to be a different normal than you're used to. So since I teach algebra and part of the story of algebra is, hey, we can use mathematical functions and relationships to make predictions and analyze patterns and data and use it to like try and figure out what's going on in the world and what it all means. And since part of algebra is exponential functions, I decided, hey, let's crunch the numbers. And honestly, it started off the Sunday night before last, this is before schools got closed in Massachusetts. As I was going to bed, I opened up my news feed and, and there it was, there were the latest numbers from Massachusetts. And I was like, wow, that definitely looks like an exponential pattern to me. So instead of going right to bed, on my phone, open up my Desmos calculator, 
which is an amazing graphing calculator app. And I just, I started making a table. And then I just started playing with the numbers and I came up with a function that I was like, huh, wonder what the numbers are going to be tomorrow. That just sounds fact, like what everyone would do to wind down at the end of the day. I am a math evangelist. <laughs> math is power. So I love science. I love math even more. And honestly, there was a time in my life when I didn't have the time of day for math. My undergraduate was in social sciences. I studied the history of social movements and social change in the United States at University of California, Berkeley. There's my sweatshirt. Wow. And like the hot spot of social change. And oh, I yeah. I was, I was there in the mid-1980s when the anti-apartheid movement and diversity movements and the people and planet before Prophet's Earth Day protests. We barricaded the Pacific Stock Exchange, the New York Stock Exchange, on the day after Earth Day. So I was, you know, I was in the thick of all of that. But when I went through various twists and turns of my career and I decided I wanted to get into teaching, I started looking, okay, I've got my bachelor's degree. I got to take the test. I want to teach science. Oh, my goodness. This science makes a lot of sense, but it seems like my math skills are lacking and I need to bone up on my math so I can understand what the heck they're talking about when they say inverse square law and square cube law and things like that. And so it was like, you know, all those times they're like, when are you ever going to use this math for? Well, you know what? I was discovering I couldn't do things because I didn't know the math. So I went back and retaught myself the math. In high school, I'd made it basically through derivatives and calculus. And I got a C plus in calculus. I was you're giving all of us non-math experts hope. All of us oh, humanities major. possible. I mean, what, I, what I've really discovered is there's a huge difference between math and what we usually experience as math class. Most math classes are so dominated by the terror of the test. There's so much pressure to teach to the test that we lose all the joy and all the beauty that is there in the mathematics and, and we're rushed our curriculum instead of teach and learn. And there's a huge difference between teach and learn and covering stuff. That's a great segue into what you're teaching your students this week. So after you were watching the, the numbers, then you decided to create some lessons around the coronavirus using math. I crunched some numbers. I, I looked up. So here's the data that, that we've got in Massachusetts. Okay, let's say Thursday, there were three cases, and then there were five, then there, I think it was eight, then there was 13, and then it went up, and it was 28 next. And so what's happening here? And they, they tried to look at it had linear equations. So they knew about slope, and they were trying to find a linear pattern, and there was like a plus five thing happening that it broke down when you went to 13 to 28. And then we said, well, what if it's kind of like a doubling pattern? Let's look at that. Maybe instead of thinking in an addy sort of way, we need to think in a timesy sort of way, where everything is multiplied instead of added. And so there's this other function that isn't just linear equations, isn't about a straight line, that can help us model something that's exponential. This is how epidemics epidemiologists use this number called an R factor, R-O, which is the number of cases that will result from a single case. So when you look at diseases that are communicable, you want to look at how many people a person can infect. So if the R factor is one, you know, one person will infect one person. 
then what's going to happen is the disease is going to have a sort of stable presence, but it's not spreading, it's not going away. If the R factor is, say, something like 0.8, then what's going to be happening is the disease is going to dwindle over time. If, on the other hand, it's above one, then it's going to grow. So the thing that we look at is that exponential growth. My students are like, oh, I, I've heard it's just like flu. I said, well, let's talk about that. The flu has a multiplier of about 1.4 on average. It means 10 people are likely to infect 14. The thing about the coronavirus is it seems to be anywhere from 2.5 to 4.5, according to at least the data from China. And so I was thinking, okay, this one's more infectious. It's more contagious than the flu. It also kills a larger percentage, anywhere from 10 to 20 times as many people as the flu on a per case basis. So we can look at the from a linear perspective, if that's the rate of deaths per case thing, that's linear. We can also look at what can we expect to be the case in a week. If we project that half the population in the United States is going to be infected, which is kind of the ballpark figure the CDC is expecting with this thing, half to 80%. How long before we get to the halfway point? If you can, you can look at the data of what's happened with the growth and uh, you look at all the countries around the world and some countries like China, it's, they've managed to get it to flatten using aggressive testing and a lot of efforts to enforce social distancing because they have the experience with SARS. They've gotten it under control. Those, you look at all the countries though, the United States and Brazil have the worst exponential curve. And that's really terrifying, to be honest. So we're looking at that so we can actually graph that and make a projection for how long it will take for that to reach the halfway point of infection. What are you doing with your students then? How are they getting engaged in this research? We've looked at the first data and then we all made predictions. Okay, based on what this looks like, let's make some predictions about what it's going to be the next few days. So the next day it didn't go up by the same doubling factor, went up to like 42. But then the day after that, it did go to do the doubling factor. And then we had to look at, okay, how good is this data? It seems like overall, if we look at several days instead of just, just one day, it does do this pattern. So, we, you know, we have to analyze, there's, there's the math that points to this pattern. But then there's how good is the data? Then we have to analyze, how are we collecting data? Okay, we're not doing enough testing. So, so it gets linked up with understanding of different phases of, of an epidemic. You have containment where you really care about the numbers. And then it's just, if you lose control of containment, that data becomes fuzzier unless you're doing a seriously aggressive testing thing like South Korea was doing. Now we're looking at, is this data that we're seeing actually accurate or is it actually much higher? There's, there's a piece of math You've probably heard of it in the back of an envelope calculations, which is getting at the world of math of using the tools to apply them to problem solving, real world problem solving, and analyzing the information we have, analyzing how valid the information we have. There's so much critical thinking that goes into it that's way beyond what's the percent off on this price if Sally buys a sweater for $38 instead of the marked price of 47 Yeah, that's the kind of math There's that I do, story more. problems. Yeah, it's much more engaged. I mean, what I've told the students is almost every so-called real-world problem they encounter is a fake-world problem. Let's do this. This is an actual real-world problem. They really 
get engaged with it. They take it really seriously. They're asking lots of questions. Sometimes it can get a little chaotic. So you have to have a little bit of space for the chaos of them, like having all their sort of brain explosions uh, as wrapping their heads around the information they're figuring out. And that's actually good chaos because it's, it's shaking them up instead of getting, having them sort of stuck in their got to do this worksheet because it's the worksheet type exactly. of mentality. How yeah. are they responding to this? One response is clearly, you know, out of a school of about 420 people, 129 of them signed up for this online class on mathematical modeling for the coronavirus. Today, we are learning from Rodney Ward, eighth grade math teacher at Krista McAuliffe Regional Charter Public School in Framingham, Massachusetts. He created an online elective for students called Coronavirus Math and Modeling to help students process the pandemic scientifically. You had this idea on a Sunday night. Yes. Did your, did your class go online on Monday? Uh, no. So we had class on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. And on Tuesday, looking at the numbers, I started thinking, I need to start preparing my students for the possibility we might be closing. You know, actually, I started preparing them Tuesday based on the math I was seeing. Then on Wednesday, after the governor had said he was waiving the 185 days thing for our state, I said to the kids, okay, it looks to me like you should prepare your mind for we might be home for a while. I'm not sure when it'll happen. And then some of my coworkers were, what's the over-under? Do you think we'll shut next week? I said, not according to my math. I think it's sooner. And then we were shut. So then did you just put out through the school, I'm going to host a, a class on the coronavirus and people could sign up? So we went, we're closed. Thursday and Friday, we had like an online professional development where we talked about what are our options? We're going to try to do this online thing. The students are asking, what's happening? I miss my friends. I miss my teachers. Not speaking that they miss their structure too, but they're missing their structure. So we sort of came up with an idea first. We're going to just teach our classes online. It was going to continue in the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education said, uh, no, there's an equity issue there. You can't teach your regular classes. You can't have just have grades, but you can do some electives without grades because you're not going to be able to get everyone involved. So we're doing that. Homework is completely optional. I'm not going to grade anyone. And without all of that, I came up with three classes I'm doing. First class is this coronavirus and modeling with math and what other things can we model with math? The second class is something I call Boss Hog and the Glomco Employment Experience in which we're running a simulation in which I am playing Boss Hog along with my daughters, Ima and Yura Hog. Uh, we are running the Glomco Corporation and I'm giving them jobs. I'm underpaying them. Uh, I am, and then I'm having them look, pick a city they're going to live in and figure out what their bills are. If they're girls, I'm paying them less because I'm incorporating the sexism that is in the wage system. So I am completely infuriating them. And as soon as they get their paychecks, very quickly discover that the first numbers they see about their salary are different from what they get in their paycheck. First, there's taxes taken out. 
But then the big kicker is their health insurance premium. So I take out their health insurance premium. And then we had a little discussion. Which do you think is the bigger cut? Taxes or health insurance? And finally, they realized, oh, it's health insurance. So you've got um, some big, some Bernie fans up there? There's definitely some of that. Then I directed them to the local rent market. I let them know how many kids they had, if they had kids, if they had spouses, whether their spouse had a job or not. They would try to figure out what could they afford. So I've got like eight of them sharing a bedroom right now in one of the arrangements. And they're all really mad at me because I'm not paying them enough to make ends meet. My goal is to get them to completely overthrow me, get them mad at me if they overthrow and organize themselves. So that Berkeley really, training is coming back out. Yeah, there's, there's, there's nearly a full rebellion amongst them. I've got 51 kids participating in that now. The third class is recreational geometry and math, where we get to play with math, just play. Those, those three words don't ever really go together for me. Recreational. I, I, you should look it up, actually. And I, I highly, highly recommend that you check out a YouTuber named Viheart. I assume her actual first name is Violet. And she calls herself a math musician. And okay. she does these amazing videos about things like hexaflexagons and the math of baking. And she does the mathematics of monkey bread, for example. So um, we're going to make what are called hexaflexagons. Uh, I strongly recommend you find out what a hexaflexagon is. It's amazing. Uh, and then we're also going to play with Mobius strips. We will play with concepts like magic squares. There's an entire world of mathematics, which is about the mathematics of playing with stuff. So you've got these three elective classes that you're teaching. Yes. The, the students are middle school students. They do yes. not have to come and they will not be getting grades. That's and you right. have 129 kids, 50 kids. And uh, there's, a, I think, 25 to 30 in the recreational math class. And you use Google Meetup to do that? So far, we've been using Google Meetup. Uh, I experimented today with YouTube Live, but I have, I need, I'm, on a, I'm at the bottom of the learning curve on some of the technology. Some people have suggested we use, use the platform of things like World of Warcraft because it's set up for the kind of load we're talking about. Well, that's interesting because my son said that one of the top games right now is this simulated pandemic video game. So I yes, think it's and you're learning so much about probability and statistics with that. As promised, I did look up hexaflexagons. Hexaflexagons are flat models, usually constructed by folding strips of paper that can be flexed or folded in certain ways to reveal faces besides the two that were originally on the back and front. You can find hexaflexagon projects on viheart.com. As Rodney mentioned, Vi Hart is a mathy musician and philosopher known primarily for work in mathematics, musical structure, and social justice. Vi is the creator of math-related videos that have together garnered over 100 million views, including the Doodling in Math class series, hexaflexagons, and 12 tones. You can connect with Vi on Twitter at ViHeartViHeart, on her YouTube channel, and on Vimeo at Vimeo.com slash ViHeart. If you have teachers who want, who are sitting here and thinking, 
I want to be boss hog and I want to do a, uh, a curriculum about budgeting and, or magic math or the coronavirus. Do you have any suggestions about how to scale up an idea like this into something that you have middle schoolers banging down your Google meetup to get in? Well, I'll tell you what, I am terrible at documentation. However, I'm really good at collaborating. So if I had some collaborators to work with, I could probably put stuff together. I fundamentally believe that the place where really interesting stuff happens is sort of the interchange and boundary between stability and chaos. So if I have some collaborators who can help me bring some stability into it, I can bring the crazy ideas and... Let me see what we can do about that. Thank you. Rodney, you are one of a kind, and we knew that when you designed your fellowship to look for the feathered dinosaur in northeastern China. It is really awesome to talk to you, and stay safe and stay healthy, okay? We look forward to using this podcast to elevate more teachers as the inspiring architects of their careers, classrooms, and school communities. But you can learn from our 8,500 FFT fellows now by visiting fundforteachers.org slash blog or check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you to Fund for Teachers fellow Rodney Ward for joining us today. To learn more about his innovative math lessons or to collaborate with him in your own classes, email him at rodneyward at mcauliferegional.org. That's R-W-A-R-D at M-C-A-U L-I-F-F-E regional.org. I'm Carrie Caton. Thank you for joining us today at Fund for Teachers, the podcast. Until next time, keep learning.